you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. Hi everybody, I'm John Raby. Here's what America thought about the old intro to this podcast. That intro is too long. Dude, that's too long. Too, too long. long. It's muy largo. What the hell, John? That intro's too long. You gotta make a new intro. Okay, here's the new intro. For more than 10 years on KPCC, I did a show about all the great people, places, and ideas of Southern California. Now I'm bringing it back, one piece at a time. From LA Studios, welcome to Off Ramp. Much better. Hey, everybody. I'm John Raby. Thank you so much for joining me for Off Ramp. I really appreciate all of you former listeners who are now listening to the show again as a podcast and everybody who's coming to us through iTunes and Stitcher and Elias.com. It's a real pleasure to have you aboard. Today, we're going to mark the 30th anniversary of one of the darkest days in L.A. history. On Friday... April 29, 1992, the all-white Simi Valley jury found four LAPD officers not guilty in the beating of Rodney King. Rage, protests, and violence broke out across Los Angeles and lasted for days. Five years ago on Off Ramp, we marked the 25th anniversary with a full hour of interviews, archival footage, and an unflinching reckoning of the LAPD and its legacy of violence. We wound up with an interview with the late Rodney King. And that's what you're going to hear this time on Off-Ramp. But before we replay that show, I need to let you know that in five years, a lot has changed. And one of them is that as a newsroom, like a lot of other newsrooms around the country, we no longer use the phrase L.A. riots. Quote, while riot is used historically, we cannot ignore the media's role in popularizing a term that is now often used as a dog whistle for race. Words like response, unrest, or uprising encourage our audiences to think deeper about its origins. That said, let's listen back to the episode of Off-Ramp that first aired April 29, 2017. More than 60 people killed, thousands hurt, a billion dollars damage, and scars that still haven't healed. Hi everybody, I'm John Raby. On this edition of Off-Ramp, the 25th anniversary of the L.A. riots. You see King down on the ground, and then you see the police officers standing on both sides of him, hitting him with the batons for what seems like minutes. It's just impossible. How could a jury look at that and find the officers not guilty? Find the defendant, Timothy E. Wind, not guilty. And dozens of fires are burning across South Central. Arson is still at work torching fresh blazes. Oh, it's tragic. The man is unconscious in the street. He's still, people are still coming up and throwing things at this poor individual. The murder and destruction in the streets of Los Angeles must be stopped. I asked the same question, where were the police? Quite frankly, we were overwhelmed. Hi, everybody. From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Off-Ramp. I'm John Raby. I'm going through a stack of newspapers left from me by uh, one of my co-workers a long time ago. Dale Hoppert collected all of the L.A. Times, uh, nine editions worth, from when the L.A. riots happened in 1992. First headline. This is from April 30th, 1992. All four in King beating acquitted. Violence follows verdicts. Guard called out. Friday, May 1st, looting and fires ravage L.A., 24 dead, 572 injured, 1,000 blazes reported. Saturday, May 2nd, Bush ordering troops to L.A., police struggle to get upper hand in turmoil. 
On May 3rd, the banner headline, once again, Jittery L.A. sees rays of hope, few crimes or major incidents reported. Then, May 4th, Bradley lifts curfew tonight. He won't speculate on departure of troops. And then Tuesday, May 5th, city returns to work, comma, school. That's what historians are going to find if they mine the newspapers for what happened uh, during the L.A. riots, which happened 25 years ago this weekend. But there are also stories of people, stories of people who were involved, people who watched. Uh, There are histories to be told. And these are the stories we're going to tell in this hour of Off Ramp. And I want to start the show at the real epicenter of the L.A. riots. That's not Florence and Normandy. It's not Simi Valley. In fact, it's the former headquarters of the LAPD, Parker Center. And we're going to hear from Joe Dominic, who's written two books on the LAPD, To Protect and to Serve, which covers the LAPD from the 1930s to the 1990s, basically to the riots, and then Blue, the LAPD and the Battle to Redeem American Policing. I talked with him because I wanted him to set the scene. Joe, thanks for being with us. My pleasure, John, always. Parker Center here is named for Bill Parker. Who was he? Bill Parker was the godfather of the modern-day LAPD. He became chief in 1950. He took it from one of the most corrupt departments in the country and actually eliminated the kind of on-the-take corruption that the department was infamous for. But he also birthed the modern-day LAPD in a way that was really detrimental to the city and to the LAPD itself. Their approach to the public was confront and command, control the situation, be aggressive. So that's how Bill Parker ran things. There were a couple of chiefs in between him and Daryl Gates, probably the most infamous of the uh, L.A. police chiefs. Uh, Daryl Gates believed that the LAPD was were the golden boys of law enforcement, that they were not just the best police department in the country, but the best police department in the world. They were America's cops, and that was the myth. The LAPD wanted to do a good job, but they didn't know how to do a good job. They refused to learn from their mistakes, and their attitude was, we're the best in the world, we don't listen to critics, we know what's best, and we're not going to change. But it was a disastrous attitude And operationally, it was a disaster because crime continued to rise at the same time that the LAPD became more and more divorced from much of the community, particularly the African-American and Latino community, which continued to get angrier and angrier and angrier. Joe, I think one of the things that we have to make sure we underscore in this conversation is that people of color in Los Angeles were being indiscriminately killed by the LAPD. This just wasn't people who were mad because they got arrested or pulled over for driving while black. The cops were killing people. They sure were. You know, scores of people, scores, hundreds of unarmed people over the years were being shot and killed by Los Angeles Police Department for, in bizarre, truly bizarre circumstances. Dozens more were choked to death by LAPD officers at a time when comparable cities using the chokehold had one person killed by a chokehold death by an officer. Let's fast forward to April 1992. Uh-huh. You've got a jury in Simi Valley considering the fate of the cops who are charged with beating Rodney King. TV stations and newspapers and radio stations, they're all making plans for the aftermath of the verdict. What was the LAPD doing? Nothing at all. 
when the verdicts came down, and we knew the verdicts were going to come down that day because it was announced earlier that morning, all of the day shift went home at 2 o'clock. Nothing was ready. Added to that was the fact that once the verdicts came down and the the riots started at Florence and Normandy, and hundreds of demonstrators came right out here in front of Parker Center. What do you think Darrell Gates did? You know that by looking at his appointment calendar. At this crucial moment in Los Angeles history, and at this crucial moment when, had he been here, when the riots in embryonic state might have been nipped in the bud, he leaves Parker Center. He goes out the back into the old ramshackle parking lot and leaves to go to the leafy, peaceful confines of Brentwood to speak at a fundraiser against a charter amendment that would limit the tenure and the independence of the chief of the Los Angeles Police Department. He did a thing any street cop wouldn't have done who had any integrity. He left his post. He deserted his post, and he tried to later justify it by saying he had put people in charge and they had let him down. Well, he had let the city down. The driver's only uh, mistake was entering the city. He's been kicked in the head. He's laying in the street. Okay, this is it. April 29, 1992, around 7 o'clock in the evening. Terrible, terrible pictures. Somebody else whose name you know well was also headed toward Florence and Normandy. At the same time, Reginald Denny was being beaten so severely there. His name was Jim Hahn, and at that point, he wasn't mayor. He was city attorney. And he was the son of one of L.A.'s most famous politicians, a man who, in fact, brought up his family in an all-black neighborhood, Kenny Hahn, the longtime L.A. County supervisor. When I realized what had happened when the verdict came down, I wanted to go by and check on my parents and see how everything was going in the, in the neighborhood. And so I was driving myself in my city vehicle, driving down Florence Avenue, and I heard on the radio that there was a major disturbance at Florence and Western. I was at Florence and Hoover, just a few blocks from that, uh, immediately pulled off of Florence and drove down side streets uh, over to my folks' house and then saw what was going on on, uh, on television when I got to their house. And I realized I would have been in the intersection probably ahead of Mr. Denny by about uh, five minutes. My name is Arthur Owens. I'm 53. As far as that day come, um, I was at work. And next thing you know, we heard this, heard on the Channel 11, it's like, oh, man, it's, it's a riot going on on, Norm's, on Normandy and Florence. And I'm like, whoa, Normandy and Florence. Like, when we, they turn on TV, we all there just looking. I was like, wow. Then we see when our Reginald got out the truck and Williams, the football player, came up with the brick and hit him, you know, and I was like, wow. Just set it all out. Wow. I wish he'd have kept driving. I really do. I wish he'd have kept driving. Actually, the first images were right here on this corner that I remember. That's KPCC News producer Bianca Ramirez standing with me at the corner of Florence and Normandy. Some people call it the flashpoint of the riots. She calls it home. I came back from school, and my dad had it on the Spanish uh, news station, Univision, and we were astonished. We were, like, in awe. And you were six. I was six years old. Even back then, I was already a news junkie. But did you get it, that this was happening near you? I did not know how far it was, but I already had that sense of injustice, that frustration in the community. Folks in the neighborhood were already talking about the Ronnie King beating, in addition to the recent killing of Latasha Harlins, the teenage black girl who was shot and killed by a 
Korean store owner, not too far from where I lived. Right across the street, actually, there lived a family of gangsters. <laughs> right next to us was a furniture factory. They broke into that factory next door, and they stole a couple of couches, a couple of uh, coffee tables, and they had a brand new living room right after that. You're Latino, obviously. Did you have friends who were black? Actually, my best friend, child, my childhood friend was black. Uh, we were next door neighbors, got along very well, and throughout that week, we all kind of, you know, stayed huddled together and kind of supported each other. How do you go about everyday life when the riots are happening? You know, they happen for for many days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was talking to my mom about that the other day, and I asked her, "How do we get groceries huh. that week?" We only had one car, and it decided to break down on us. So my dad got on his bike and literally drove his bike more than five miles to the nearest city, which is Huntington Park, to buy groceries for us that week. I have friends who ask me, why do I still live in South L.A.? I live just a few blocks away from Florence and Normandy, and, you know, it's home. This is where I grew up. This is where my roots are. Yes, uh, you still have, you know, gang violence around, but, you know, at the end of the day, this is my home and I love it. People get along. People say hi in the morning when I get out and get my newspaper. Folks say good morning to each other and, you know, we go about our business. Thank you very much. Thank you. From Florence and Normandy in South L.A., this is Off Ramp on 89.3 KPCC. Did you buy your 40s here at Tom's Liquor? Huh? <laughs> Maybe. It was a lot of crazy stuff going on. It's a lot of shooting. The gang banging was like at its all-time high. You had to dope. The crack came in. When you bring the dope and the money in, that brings more problems. Because now, these dope dealers and gangbangers who was just regular, maybe had one gun, now they got an unlimited amount of money to buy guns. And they had gun shop. They, they burnt the gun shop and took all the guns for free. And that be- it became even worse. Tony Knox lives in the neighborhood, too. He was 18 in 1992. No, when you look at it... it it has definitely changed and got a lot better. I've been here all my life. I was born in the Morningside Hospital right there. If you are a grown-up and you already really don't know nothing about the gang culture, this is South Central L.A. But this area right here, where the riots start, is A-Trey Gangsta Crips. And that's where everything began. You know, the word got out. Everybody was like, what's going on on Florence and Normandy? So I just went down there to see what was going on. And like every five minutes, another 10 people, another 10 people, and it was about 100 people. And they just went bananas, and I guess they couldn't take it. They went nuts, started beating up people, snatching them out their cars, throwing bottles through their windows. These are just people passing by that didn't know what was going on. But see, it all trickled down, too, from the verdict. When the message came from the verdict, those officers were going to be let free. They weren't going to take it. That was the last straw. Because you got to understand, this neighborhood, like, the police were, like, harassing a lot of people. You know, they had that, that drug injunction where Tuesdays and Thursdays, they... If you look like a gangster or something, they can just lock you up for the weekend. Well, some people dressed like that, but they wasn't gangsters, and they was getting locked up. So it was all like a, a whirlwind of things that just ignited, and it just spread like wildfire all over. I'm Jennifer Fuentes. I was 12 years old, and um, I was in my apartment building in Pico Union. It was fires, and then 
rioting. We lived right next to a furniture store, a bar, <laughs> right across the street from a Rite Aid or a Thrifties, I guess, back then. They were looting the stores. We lived on a second story, so we were literally on the balcony watching the whole thing happen, and we thought that they were going to come in our apartment building. We saw everything from people taking furniture to diapers to makeup and just people running. Our neighbors were running too. The funny thing is that in our apartment complex, I remember it was a Mexican family, us, our Salvadoran family, another Mexican family and a Nicaraguan family. You might know in LA there's a major tension between Central Americans and Mexicans. When they thought that something was going to happen, they might come in and burn our apartment building. That's when my family and the neighbors actually started speaking, started trying to save our apartment building. They got on the roof with a hose and they started hosing down the place to kind of cool it down because our windows were really hot. I think they realized, or they, they might not have realized, that they all had something in common and it was their survival. It lasted a couple months, and then after that, everything went back to normal. And I kind of felt that that was the general case with people. People kind of started uniting. People realized what had happened, but everything went back to normal. When my mom owned her restaurant on Manchester, she, um, when everything, everything was up in flames, our neighbors, uh, who were African-American and they owned a tire shop, they advised my mom to put a black-owned sign on her, <laughs> on her window. My mom did, and when we went back after the four days when the riot was over, everything, McDonald's, Louisiana chicken, everything that was around there was, was gone except for my mom's little restaurant. This is Off Ramp, looking back at the L.A. riots, which started 25 years ago this weekend. Remember, I started the show reading you headlines from the stack of L.A. Times from the first days of the riots. Uh, Now I'm looking deeper into the paper, and it's a real time machine. I mean, number one, in terms of uh, just how papers have changed, this paper's much wider. It's a lot thicker. The staff was huge at the L.A. Times. The stories in the paper, the non-riot stories tell a story all their own. For instance, a memorial service for uh, a star of silent films. There's a a funeral for one of the Romanoffs. And then a lot of ads. A lot of ads. Prices were a lot higher back then than they are now. For instance, uh, a coffee maker then, a simple brawn coffee maker, was $30. That's about what it is now, right? Here's an ad for TWA. Remember, Trans World Airlines Paris. For $374 each way. And then you could buy, believe it or not, a cell phone that fit in your pocket. Let me find that ad for you. A Motorola portable phone so compact it can fit folded in a shirt pocket. $574. It only had 75 minutes of talk time. 
Hey everybody, it's John Ravy back with you now in the studio. I'm going to pause this episode of Off Ramp right here. It's been a lot to process, and we have made a promise at KPCC to not hit you over the head with bad news. Tomorrow, I'll drop part two, which includes not only Rodney King himself reflecting on his unlikely martyrdom, but Peter Sagal telling about his insane meeting in the middle of the riots with, well, I'll tell you who he meets in part two. Off Ramp, the podcast, is a production of KPCC and Elias Studios. Our theme music is by Fesslian Studios. I'm John Raby. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people.